This podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. Go to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate or check out the THN Patreon page to become a monthly supporter. And Omaha Bound. No one has more experience binding comic books into beautiful hardbound editions. Check out their work at OmahaBound.com. Thanks to Omaha Bound and stay tuned for an announcement about their Kickstarter for Paul Tobin and Phil Hester's Fringe series from Caliber Comics collected for the first time. Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. Broadcasting from the quarantined ziggurat at Omaha, deep below the metro area, it is our pleasure to welcome you to episode 591 of the Two-Headed Nerd comic book podcast. I am head number one, but you might know me better as the internet's Joe Patrick. My name's Matt Bum. You're head number two. Today on the show, the Cosmic Longbox is back, and it's forcing us to read and review fifth-week event comics from across the time stream. After that, it's up to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum to discuss our must-read picks for next week. And finally, we're reviewing Tom Scioli's Jack Kirby bio, The Life and Times of the King of Comics, in our Take a Look, It's in a Book segment. But that's enough of this intro BS. Be prepared for high action and weird versions of your favorite heroes, because it's review time in the ziggurat. It's actually deep. This week, we're dipping into the Cosmic Long Box to review fifth week events from Comics Past. Joe Patrick, before we get started, why don't you tell these kids about the lost event that was the fifth week? Yeah, uh, so back in the day, we're talking the 90s and early 2000s, uh, comics were on a very regular four-week publishing schedule, like you, like you might expect. You know, there's four Wednesdays in every month, except... Sometimes there's a fifth Wednesday. Oops. Jack's everything fifth up. week. Once per quarter, there was a fifth release week in the month. And it left publishers, n- namely the big two, kind of holding the bag with nothing to put out. Which is so funny came- because nowadays they'll put out bullshit for any excuse. At least they yeah, had an true. excuse back then. Yes. <laughs> So they came up with the idea of the fifth week event, which was a kind of mini uh, a, a, a themed collection of stories, usually one shots. Sometimes it was a larger storyline uh, that would mostly be published in that blank week. Um, now, the fifth week event kind of went away once, you know, huge, big summer epics came around like Blackest Night and things right. like that, you know, like. They didn't have any problems filling that <laughs> filling that gap. Uh, so the fifth week event is a lost art. But back in the heyday, we got some weird ones. Ooh, yes, we did. Let's get started here with New Year's Evil. Now, New Year's Evil was a series of one shots that featured DC villains who were going to get a push that year. This took place in 1988. I'm reviewing Prometheus, number one, from DC. It was written by Grant Morrison with art by Arnie Jorgensen. I had to look up Arnie Jorgensen because the art looked really familiar, but the name wasn't hit me. Turned out this guy did a ton of crap. He worked on Cable. He worked on Legion. He worked on a bunch of Vertigo stuff, and he's really good. Yeah. 
Prometheus would go on to join the Injustice Gang and take over the JLA Watchtower in Morrison's World War III story that happens later next year, 99-2000. Here we meet little Prometheus, who was raised by anarchist hippies that understood the family that goes on crime rampages together stays together until he witnesses their grisly death and his hair turns white. Flash forward, we see Prometheus detailing his origin to a kid that won a chance to meet the JLA. He's like dressed up in a costume, but he's not actually a hero. He calls himself Retro because he's like the hero of yesterday. Here today, Retro, right? Today's hero, yesterday's attitude. Something like that, yeah. Prometheus details his entire origin to this kid that won this chance to meet the JLA. Seems like a nice enough kid, and Prometheus kind of seems like a nice guy, too. He traveled the world. He fought with gorillas in South America. Like, you know, not actual gorillas, but like gorilla Gu- Guerrillas. <laughs> yeah, guerrillas. He hung like out- che, Like Che Guevara. Yes. He hung out with evil monks in Tibet in Shambhala, where he finds a cosmic key that allows him to access the void, which is a whole nother dimension where he sets up his own crooked little house and develops a suit that he can implant CDs into a helmet that basically- give him an imprint of whoever's powers or abilities are on that CD. It's kind of ridiculous. It's like a taskmaster situation. Sort of. But it's like Uh, taskmaster meets Johnny Mnemonic. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's pretty silly in hindsight that he puts these little mini discs into his helmet. But But at the time, mini discs were very cool. I love this character, and Morrison did a fantastic job fitting this into his JLA run. Jorgensen's art is fantastic and felt very kind of house Batman style at the time. It had sort of a Scott McDaniel look to it. This was by far the best of the New Year's Evil one shots. I remember these being pretty fun, so I read a couple more of them. The Rogues one, the Flash one was pretty good. Some Some of the other ones, not so hot, but, you know, they were fun. They were sort of revitalizing a lot of villains at the time. And I believe Prometheus was really the only new villain that was introduced here, right? He was the standout. Yeah, he was a standout. Uh, I mean, let's not let's not pay any attention to the fact that he gets defeated by Batman uploading the brain patterns of Stephen Hawking into his helmet and then Catwoman whipping him in the crotch. <laughs> well, you know, but, you, know <laughs> hey, you know, it happens. I've given it a buy it. Yeah, it's great. It's so good. Arnie Jorgensen's art is phenomenal. Uh, I don't know whatever happened to that guy, but I remember seeing him a bunch in the 90s. His comic work like hits 1996 and stops, but he went on to do a bunch of like video game comic work or video game artwork. Oh, well, good. Uh, Yeah, this is a really great intro to uh, 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 what was a pretty cool character at the time. And, and, you know, even if you had only written, even if you had only read the uh, JLA issues where he first appeared, uh, you know, he was still awesome at the time. This just offers a cool, like, anti-Batman totally. twist yeah. on his origin. The, and it's like and, um, totally Grant Morrison doing anti-Batman. And, of course, rather than learn all the stuff that Batman does, he cheats because he's the anti-Batman. Totally, yeah, he's it a cheater. It just makes yeah. sense. Yeah, but this is a huge buy it for me. I loved this one shot a ton. I've read it a bunch. Um, you know, I, I kind of love Prometheus. I, like he every time they brought him back, he was a little bit less cool. But yeah, I still I still love the guy. The last time we saw him was Justice League. Cry 
Cry for Justice back in uh, 2009, 2010. What was he? Uh, what was he doing then? Like, I don't, uh, I don't think it was as up- cool. Uploading his helmet, the Napster. <laughs> yeah, I believe so. <laughs> Put a Zune in there. <laughs> yeah, I believe he was all Zune back then. Yeah, yeah he was 2010. All, all, yeah. <laughs> that was his, ultimately his downfall. All right. My first review is of Tangent Comics, The Secret Six, number one from DC Comics, 1997. Uh, Tangent Comics was born from the mind of writer Dan Juergens, and it's a universe where the Cuban Missile Crisis escalated to the point that the landscape of the entire world and the development of superheroes was changed. So here we've got familiar names, but they have radically different identities. Uh, The radioactively powered Adam is the Superman stand-in. He fights alongside versions of the Flash, who is like this teenage pop star that travels at light speed. Plastic Man, who is this giant like hunk of of plastic robot that changes shape. Kind of chemo looking thing, right? Sort of, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Spectre, Manhunter, and the Joker. Uh, writer Chuck Dixon's story is a pretty basic assembling the team tale with great art by Tom Grummet. The real draw, though, is seeing uh, the different takes on classic characters. Uh, I mentioned Plastic Man. Uh, he's driving this shape-shifting robot uh, from uh, the body of a comatose patient. A comatose scientist is, like, steering the ship. Uh, the Spectre is an invisible, intangible thief forced into serving with the team to avoid prison. Uh, I just really loved the Tangent comics back in the day. I thought it still held up. It's very bombastic. It's very Silver Agey. Like, check out this brand new world and oh, these yeah. brand new characters. Um, you know, so it's 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 all kind of silly and tongue in cheek, but in a very fun way. I'm giving it a buy. It. Yeah, there was a lot of definitely high ideas here, <laughs> which yeah, maybe yeah. a fifth week event that's only going to run of you know six or seven issues is. Not the best place to develop all that, but they just kind of well, drop they you did into it, it again. They did it again the next year. Yeah, we did get tangent um, again. Yeah, and and they're fun. They are definitely fun. It's not as memorable as I remembered it being. Like it kind of came back to me, and it was like, oh yeah, I remember this now. <laughs> yeah, I think Secret Six was my favorite of the bunch, but I think that the I think that the different take, like if you look it up on Wikipedia, uh, the wildly different takes they have on these. Uh, characters is pretty impressive. Like, you know, the metal man is this military division of characters that got the nickname because they seemingly can't be killed. Oh yeah. Like the uh, sea devils are all like, they're like orcas, like monstrous with creatures. Yeah. Right. <laughs> really uh, Nightwing is a secret organization that trades in like mystical, uh, mystical secrets. Yeah, you know, you, it's, you can tell they had a ton of fun throwing. Yeah. It, it was just like, in, in the back manner, it's like, you know, Elseworlds are great, but that's just like, it's Batman, but if he was this, it's right. Superman, but if he was this, right. Tangent is like our chance to take these names and create an entirely new world around them. Uh, and I think that's just a super fun idea. Totally. My next review is Green Lantern, Circle of Fire, number one from DC 2000. I completely forgot about this book and when me we too. when we looked up the list of fifth weeks i was like what was that then i started reading it all came back to me this was written by a young spry brian k vaughn with art by norm brayfogel and it starts off really good the story opens on ran 
the adopted planet of its champion, Adam Strange, who's trying to figure out why crowds are running in terror, but it turns out a big bad named Oblivion has showed up and he makes people go insane with fear. But just as Adam confronts the villain, the Zeta beam that transports him to Ran wears off and he's sent back to Earth, which I feel like always happens to this poor son of a bitch. <laughs> mm-hmm. When he gets back, he tries to warn the JLA, but he runs into a firestorm who is separate from the professor at the time and has never met Adam Strange, and they get in a fight for a minute, but then the Adam, not Adam Strange, the Adam, is who's been working with Ronnie Raymond, comes out and's like, stop punching him, I know that guy, he's a friend. And he's like, Adam Strange, good to meet you. And they have this like little joke where uh, Firestorm goes, wait a minute, you're both named Adam? And he's like, ugh. I'm AD, he's AT. (laughs) (laughs) They go and they warn the JLA, and Kyle agrees to head with them out into space to check this dude out. But as it turns out, Kyle may have brought Oblivion into existence with the comics he drew as a kid, which is where things get kind of (laughs) stupid. The late 90s, early 2000s was some of my favorite JLA stuff. And reading this took me back to Kyle Rayner's run in Green Lantern that I loved so much. John Stewart is here back when he was in a wheelchair. Ronnie Raymond is here. Hal Jordan is the specter, but nobody knew it at the time. The story is wacky, and it's by no means Norm Brayfogle's best work. It's not his fault. There were five different inkers on the book, and I don't know if a few of them hated Mr. Brayfogle and wanted to ruin his career, but wow, yeah, did they crap was, all over his pencils. <laughs> it was a mess. The art is a mess. Now, we'll talk about it later, but in reading that uh, Jack Kirby book, I feel like I have some insight into what happens to art sometimes when inkers get a hold of it. I will yeah. say, this is a fun read, very much a product of its time. I didn't read any more than the first issue but I don't think it gets much better. I'm going to give the first issue, I was going to say a buy it. I'm going to give it a skim it. I I, have, yeah, it's a skim it because the art is so bad. It is bad. And, and like, I think this like series Norm Brayfogle took Norm a really Brayfogle weird crap, am- too. <laughs> yeah. Norm Brayfogle was an amazing, talented artist. Um, but some of these inkers do such a disservice to his work that it is atrocious yeah. to look at. The first few pages are beautiful. It's like John. Yep. Yeah. You know, and Kyle. It's, yeah. In, at in first it's, it's really good at first. Uh, and it just gets worse as you go. Yeah. Um, this came out during the peak of Judd Winnick's run on the character. Yeah. So uh, good. Uh, I, I don't remember anything. I like it all came flooding back to me. Uh, as I read this, because I was confusing it with um, there was a storyline later on uh, towards the end of the run that was written by Ben Robb. It was pretty terrible. Uh, Charlie Adler did the art and it was it came out every other week. It was called like Black Circle or something. Okay. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Is that when the Black Hand came back? No, 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 no. That was Black as Night. This was the, this was like some alien story. Okay. I think the idea is solid. Uh, I, I like. The, the concept that like this thing you came up with as a dumb kid has come to life and it's killing people is kind of terrifying. Uh, as I recall, and, and I might be wrong, but I think we kind of learned that Kyle is so powerful that he has to be careful with his own psyche because he can like will this stuff into existence. Yeah. So I think that this is what Lee, this is the kind of like the, um, the roadmap to all that ion stuff. Yes. Where he started like 
internalizing the power of the power battery right. and like changing the laws of reality and it stuff. becomes the white like, lantern and he wears that yeah. that white hood with the point and the eyes cut out yeah you know, which right, was a yeah, weird right. choice the, the white the, the white power lantern <laughs> yeah. um <laughs> But that yeah, did if, not like, if I'm rec- by like, the way, spoilers. That's a joke. That didn't happen. <laughs> no, it didn't. Uh, um, but like sp- potential spoilers for Circle of Fire, I'm fairly certain that by the end of it, they reveal that all of these extra Green Lanterns that show up, uh, he just summoned out of thin air. <laughs> that's how he fights them. Yeah, with make believe. Yeah, yeah, like they're make believe. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is a solid skim it, and it would be a buy it. But the art is bad. This was a bad way to kick off the storyline. I remember the one-shot tie-ins being a lot better. Next up for me is Girl Frenzy, The Mist, number one from DC. It's 1998. What is the title? Girl Frenzy. (laughs) Uh, So Girl Frenzy was a series of one-shots featuring female characters. There was Lois Lane. There was Power Girl. Right. Um, They did one that was... um, the Secret, which was a character that was uh, an important part of young, Peter David's Young Justice at right. the time. But Girl Frenzy? What the Girl f- Frenzy. <laughs> hey, buddy. We're just, look, you're lucky it wasn't spelled with two R's, okay? Yeah, it's G-R-R-L Frenzy. Yeah. Uh, this one shot takes place, though, firmly within James Robinson's acclaimed run on Starman with his arch enemy, The Mist, falling victim to a kidnapping by a formerly lame supervillain, The Black Hand. This is not the black hand you remember no. from Blackest Night nope. or anything that came after. And they kind of threw me because I, while he's reading this, I was like, wait a uh, minute. Isn't this guy a badass? <laughs> this guy is a capital L loser. Uh, black hand forces the mist to jump through a bunch of villainous hoops in, att- in an attempt to steal a super weapon. But the mist is always one step ahead. Uh, Robinson does a great job establishing the mist's diabolical genius even when she's overwhelmed by forces on both sides of the law she's able to play both the villains and the heroes that are out to get her to uh, suit her own ends it's it's a pretty great little character study the art by john lucas with finishes by doom patrol artist richard case which means this might as well have been drawn by richard case uh is really well done it's not too flashy though is it really well done there's some weird stuff well i mean uh, john lucas does the layouts so I'm, you know, any Richard Case is a phenomenal artist. Richard Case is good. And and you can see his art shining through, but uh, yes, it's not his it's not all his work. So yes, I agree that there are there's some, some weird stuff and then there's some like parts of the book where the background just falls away and we're standing in front of green or blue <laughs> like, that happened a lot in the 90s it looks though. like there was some stuff like oh we didn't have time to finish that so there you go <laughs> eh, that happens a lot in the 90s uh in the end this one shot puts the character on the path toward her fateful confrontation with jack knight uh, which makes girl frenzy colon the mist a must read for starman fans eh, but it's probably a skim it for everyone else <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a skim for me. The, the art got a little weird, and it's an interesting... Like, at the time, I don't think there were any other supervillains that had kids and stuff. Like, a single mom supervillain? That was pretty revolutionary, right? Well, and the whole deal with where that kid came from is a pretty big deal in right, the Starman. And, and we learned that later yeah. and whatnot. But just uh, the fact that she was yeah. a mom and she was held hostage by another lame bad guy. Like, there's some clever stuff. You can see James Robinson working. 
Uh, the art is just weird, and I couldn't handle it in some panels. And the whole thing, like Mary Marvel shows up, and the Miss sort of plays Mary Marvel. But is she playing Mary Marvel, or are they teamed up? Yep, she is playing her. But is she? Because in the end, Mary Marvel's like, well, maybe she's not all bad. But then we find out, yeah, she's really fucking bad. And also, not as bad as we thought for different reasons. So, I Oh, just- no, no, no. She's bad, because in her previous appearance, uh, so she's in Europe at this time. Right. Uh, and in her previous appearance in Starman, she murders the entire Justice League Europe. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, oh, yeah. And she was the daughter of the original Shade, right? No, she's the daughter of the original Mist. Oh, that's the right. Oh, the original Mist. Mist. Okay. I'm giving yeah, it a skim yeah. it. I just, I, I feel like this probably would have been better served being set up in the pages of Starman. They were like, hey, we're doing this girl frenzy thing. You want in? And he was like, sure. <laughs> Here you go. Well, I mean, yeah, but I mean, it is what it is. It was yeah. they were setting up these female characters that they wanted to promote, and the they mist were, was they were girls popular at the time. They were frenzied. I get it. <laughs> they were frenzied, Matt. Frenzied. My next review is of X Men Black Sun number one from Marvel two thousand. Your creative team was writer Chris Claremont with art by Thomas Derenick. Now, if you weren't paying attention you would have thought that this was going to be the biggest X title ever. It was the return of Chris Claremont to the X-Men. I threw down my cash, I raced home, I popped open the cover, and I said out loud, here we go! And then I was treated to short-haired Kitty in the, in the danger room with a Wolverine claw fighting a Nagari demon. And then the Nagari actually attack and do a really bad impersonation of the X-Men that includes Nightcrawler, a deeply religious Catholic at the time, encouraging Kitty to take part in a blood <laughs> magic ceremony. And of like course, the Catholics do. She's all too willing to do so. And oh my God, it turns out they're Nagari and they're taking over the world now. <laughs> Black Sun was Claremont coming back to the X-Men. He had just been working on this revolution stuff. And you know what? He seemed angry. It seemed like he hated what was going on at the time and wanted to show everyone that he could do it better. But in doing so, in this storyline, he changed the X-Men out of their costumes, cut their hair, gave Colossus a ponytail, and everyone got badass attitudes to boot. Kitty's dialogue is just bizarre in this. She's so angry about everything that's going on and maybe i just need to take out some of this rage on something like give me a break i don't need her to be that edgy it's ridiculous claremont ended up writing a nonsensical mishmash x story that had nothing to do with what was going on in the other books at the time so much so it felt like he was spitting on the other books at the time tom derenick's art was pretty good but nobody cared about claremont's nagari demons back in the day and we certainly don't give a shit about them when he tried to bring them back i can't give this a bigger leave it and i don't understand <laughs> how they tried to pull this off yeah i mean this is pretty terrible I, I think it's hilarious that Claremont's big idea of what the X-Men's, you know, eternal nemeses are, are these like shitty demons that it's, live in their backyard. It's so weird. <laughs> it's like, okay. All right. The one time they showed up in, in, um, 
Uncanny X-Men 95 or 96, the issue after Thunderbird dies. Right. I was like, yo, okay, sure. Cyclops accidentally opened a portal to hell. There's a demon. Things get rough. And they've always done that supernatural shit. Limbo. Yeah, yeah, and fine, Sim, right. And I'm yeah, fine yeah, with no it. problem. I like that. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, years later, we get that classic story where it's Christmas time and Kitty's alone in the house. And yeah. oops, there's a Nagare demon running around again for some reason. And you know what? That's great, too. And that could have been where it ended forever. Yep. <laughs> uh, like the Nagari are not interesting. They no. are like featureless, formless, generic monsters. And this storyline is ridiculous. Uh, I actually thought the art was bad. I am not a fan of Tom Derenick. Uh, and Claremont is just in full display with all of his like terrible dialogue excesses here. This is a leave it for me as so well. So much dialogue too. It's, like, it's really bad. And just as he runs out of dialogue, there's long like dialogue, like narration boxes to fill in the rest of the space. <laughs> like, oh Yeah, no thank you. God. No thank you. All right, next for me is Marvel's Comics, Spider-Man number one from Marvel Comics 2000. Uh, Marvel's Comics was a fun idea examining what comics would be like inside the Marvel Universe. For example, the only officially licensed property was the Fantastic Four, which was very classically created in continuity by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Uh, They appeared in the book as themselves. It's pretty hilarious. Uh, and so, of course, the only thing people know about Spider-Man in the Marvel U is that he's a menace. Uh, perhaps even a monster. Ooh. That's the premise set up here by, of all people, Jack Staff creator Paul Grist uh, and artist Kyle Hotz. Here, Spider-Man is a monstrous blood-drinking creature terrorizing the night that just may have a connection to crusading newspaper publisher T.T. Thomas. I don't know who they were going for there. Yeah. I mean, JJ Jonah, obviously TT Thomas. It's just, I mean, that was a joke, man. Okay. (laughs) But thank you for, thank you for pointing that out. No problem. Uh, This is a totally goofy throwback to classic storytelling with over the top silver age dialogue and a horror theme. That's more silly than scary. Like, you know, it's very like simple storytelling. Yeah. Astronaut goes into space. Something vague happens in space. Astronaut comes back to Earth and is now a monster. But not just any monster. He looks like Spider-Man. A spider monster that looks like Spider-Man for space reasons. (laughs) Right. Yeah, space reasons. Exactly. Uh, Hotz's moody art does its best to sell the theme, but ultimately it's just kind of goofy. The Marvel's comics concept is a really fun idea. It does come off a bit silly revisiting it after 20 years. I'm giving this a skim it. I had fun reading this, but like, I I cannot fault anybody for giving it a pass. It's kind of hokey. It's almost like Kyle Hotz's art was too scary for the dumb story. <laughs> you know, like, like the art took it too seriously because this Spider-Man was like hulking and had claws and fangs and yeah. sucked blood and stuff. But like the story was pretty golden age horror if you will and like yeah right yeah. i don't know it just didn't match it didn't work. i'm giving it a skim as well it just didn't work for me i think this might be the uh this next book might be the most divided we have ever been on a single comic book here we go my next review is of daredevil 2099 number one from marvel 2004 your creative team was 
writer Robert Kirkman with art by Carl Moline and Mike Perkins one year before this event. Kirkman had just launched his Walking Dead book and image, and he was hot, baby. So when I heard Robert Kirkman was going to be writing my favorite Marvel character, albeit the 2099 version, I was still psyched. Then I read the story. In this 2099 world, Sentinels have replaced the cops, and the Kingpin's great-grandson, Samuel Fisk, is Daredevil by night, wearing a suit that he admits literally does all the work for him, and he uses guns, too. So... Not much like Daredevil at all. He even shoots himself out of his Blade Runner car on rooftops. <laughs> Kirkman came in with a big idea. The Kingpin's great-grandson is Daredevil. And the Kingpin. Spoiler. He spends the whole book whining about having to redeem his family. His family was so bad and they were so evil and he's got to redeem them. He, there's even a scene where he comes home and his wife is like, where have you been? He's like, I can't talk about it. I'm too busy trying to redeem what our family has done. And then on the last page, he murders a dude in a mob execution. Not just any dude, by the way. The dude that he caught his wife sleeping with. Which does not make a damn bit of sense. But don't worry, because in issue two, Kirkman shows that he didn't actually kill the guy in the last page. Oh, wait, there was no issue two, and what the fuck? <laughs> Perkins and Moline are solid and aren't here, but it's nothing to freak out about. While it's very difficult to write a one-shot about a character we've never met before and make the reader care in 26 pages, this is not how you do it. Unless they didn't tell Kirkman that it was only one issue, I don't understand why you set this up. Joe and I had an argument earlier today, and Joe was like, well, but he's a good guy and a bad guy. And I get that. But essentially what Kirkman is asking us to believe here is that he is a man that is so torn by the crimes of his family that he is willing to go out and punish murderers and criminals except for when he catches someone sleeping with his wife, in which case, he's going to murder them. To well, I mean, that guy got punished, didn't he? I, I don't disagree. But what is this character? He's murdering people to get justice for murder victims and using his own personal, like, gripe with a dude for the excuse to murder? <laughs> like, what are we doing here? It's a leave it. Give it it's a, a leave it. Oh, it's a big yeah, right, leave thank it. You. Like, I, I honestly do not understand why you had such a hard time wrapping your head around this. Like, it's just a throwaway one-off concept of a character that was never seen again. I don't disagree. Punishing murderers by murdering people and, like, murdering someone he's personally mad at and trying to make up for his own family's murders? I just... Who is this? Where are we going You're, here? Man, you are just really reading way too much into it. I hated it. <laughs> oh, my God. I thought it was great. I, I, I thought it. Kirkman's dialogue was pretty solid. Uh, I loved the art. I think Carl Moline is a great artist. Uh, Mike Perkins, I also love. Uh, I didn't really notice the shift between the two. Uh, yeah, I like this idea that the Kingpin's great-grandson is torn between two loyalties like that's not that's a classic torn between two loyalties is trope. one thing torn between two loyalties is one thing whining the entire time about how he has to make up for his family's evil and then shooting a guy in the head 
that is tied to a chair and helpless in the last scene are hey. pretty two divergent ideas unless they want to introduce the idea that like, oh, by the way, he has two completely separate personalities. Or yeah, hey, didn't Donnie Brasco have to do terrible things? He was an undercover cop. Co- sure, yeah. Sure, right. He was also so, a rat. Okay, but my the, my point is, Donnie Brasco like, if you wanna, if you also wanna not a superhero, it, and this one seems to be in charge of his own destiny where Donnie Brasco was not, so- not counting my, that. My point <laughs> is, if you want to read into something, why don't you read into the fact, to the idea that, like, this guy, people look up to this guy as the kingpin, and they came to him with this man that wronged him. What was he supposed to do? Give him a slap on the wrist and send him on his way? No, you're right. He's a hero. He should have murdered him. That's what he should have done. That's what heroes do, Joe. He's, he wants to redeem himself, right? He spends a whole issue telling me he wants to redeem himself and his family. Well, he's also, again, murder. there's nothing in this book that says he's a good hero. He's just not. trying. Like, he's not. torn between these aspects of his life, and he's trying, and he's failing. Hated it. <laughs> it's a buy it. This is a good comic. Ugh. That made me sweat. <laughs> you are exhausting. My final review of the week is Marvel Mangaverse New Dawn one shot from Marvel. It's from 2002. I could have sworn that the Marvel Mangaverse was the project that brought us CB Sobolski's ill advised alias Akira Yoshida, uh, but I was wrong. It was the brainchild of Ninja High School creator Ben Dunn. Yeah. The Marvel Universe, you know, is reimagined as a land of giant mechs and monsters with Antoinette, quote unquote, Tony with an I, Stark, in charge of the company left behind by her missing brother. The big difference between them is that she has no problem selling out her technology to the government. When Stark Island is attacked by a double crossing ally and the avenging son of Atlantis, a very different version of the Hulk is set loose on the world. I thought this was kind of a fun concept really Uh, i liked the little twists on all the familiar marvel characters Uh, ben dunn's art and layouts they invoke a strong manga vibe as you'd expect though his women are ridiculously proportioned and shown without clothes at every opportunity oh yeah which i i guess is something else you might expect that was the style at the time too sure yes you know we hung an onion from our belt which was the style at the time yeah totally give me two b's for a nickel i'd say Uh, My biggest problem is that the story just goes on and on and on as characters explain everything that's currently happening as well as everything that's happened in the previous three years to get them to this point. It like so much so that I thought, is this really the introduction of the Marvel Mongoverse? Yes. Yes, it is. (laughs) It was a bit of a slog after the first 20 pages or so. I don't know much about manga. And I don't normally gravitate towards it, but this was more fun than I remembered it being because at the time I hated the idea. Uh, even if it was a chore to read at times, I'm giving it a strong skim. It. I thought it was fun. I don't know if this was actually Ben Dunn's fault and maybe he had like a much larger scope project in mind. And they were like, yeah, let's do it, Ben. Absolutely. You can have several years to flesh this out. And then they came back to him and went, Ben, uh, I got bad news. But the good news is, you got one week to do it. <laughs> and well, gonna, I mean, they did a bunch of one issues. shots and then they yeah. did a sequel, a sequel miniseries. Later on, like, they so, did. But I mean, like, yeah. 
you obviously could tell he had a lot of ideas that he tried to force all into this book to bring you up to speed so you would love it. And look, it was fake. It was fake manga stuff. And I, I don't care for the Marvel Universe when it is forced into another genre like this. It just doesn't do much for me. I can't, I'm not going to give it a leave it because they worked hard on it and there were some fun ideas. I'm giving it a skim it. I just don't care when they pull this shit, you know? No, I'm in the same, uh, same boat, but like I, like I read it with an open mind and I was like, oh, you know what? I was really down on this at the time. It was as not as bad fan. as I remembered it being. I'll say that. And I, I read it, I read it, you know, yesterday and I was like, yeah, you know what? There's some, there's some fun to be had in the content. Sure. Even though it's not something I would normally pick. So which book wins, Joe? What is your book of the week? It's if you say Prometheus. Okay, good. Come on. If you say it's Daredevil 2099, I'm gonna come through this computer and punch you. (laughs) No, are you kidding me? We gave a skim we gave a skim it or a leave it to every other book we did. You gave Daredevil a buy it. Uh, well, I did, but that was more to spite you. <laughs> That's not even fair. You need to be like fair and balanced. You're a reviewer, you son of. Ugh. Yeah, Prometheus. No, I mean, I liked it. I'm giving it a buy it. But no, Prometheus was the best book yeah, I read all week. By far. Grant Morrison's Prometheus introduction was fantastic. It still holds up. I mean, it's Grant Morrison. So it's not even really fair. <laughs> like, we like, I mean, it's Brian true. K. Vaughn was in this mixture of creators. He was very young at the time. But yeah, it's Prometheus. Kathrash! That does it for reviews this week, and Kathrash is the sound of gung-ho and Zartan smashing through a wall in the pit, as seen in the pages of G.I. Joe number 48. This onomatopoeia of the week was submitted by Carl Smith via the THN fan page, uh, which Matt is complaining is not where we tell you to submit these things, but I'm telling you, you can submit them anywhere you want. I can't check there because I'm not a fan of the show, so I removed myself from the group. I, it's just not. You don't have to be a fan of the show. It's just it's not a my kind of show. Group, okay. Well, I'm not going to go there because I just don't enjoy the show. So whatever. Well, don't come <laughs> at me for failing to do your job. <laughs> right. If you want to submit an onomatopoeia of the week, you can post it to any of our social media accounts or send an email to twoheadednerd at gmail.com. Better yet, call us. Make the noise. Tell us where it came from, and we will play it on the show. Carl also sent us a panel from Malibu Street Fighter comic yeah. of, yes. like, Sagat and somebody else scalping Ken. Like, Balrog. Literally scalping him and then mailing his scalp to Ryu. And I don't remember that happening in the games. And I don't remember the Malibu books being, A, drawn that badly, and B, <laughs> being that violent. <laughs> um, I think that happened in Street Fighter 3 Alpha Turbo. Oh, that could be. That could be. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I started yeah. playing that one, and they had to take me to the hospital for a seizure, so I never finished it. You know. <laughs> That is it for reviews, and now it's time to head up to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum, where we're celebrating the fall solstice with a good old-fashioned Mole Man orgy! Yeah! And Yuck. we're going to be making our picks for next week. Joe, don't be such a prude, baby. Get those Gross. pants off. No. Get in here and tell these nerds about your pick for next week. I'm going to make a bunch of like... not, sir. Noises in the background. <laughs> yeah. All right, my pick for next week is Department of Truth number one from Image Comics. It's written by James Tinian the Four. I believe he has since corrected the internet by saying it's pronounced Tynan. Whatever, dude. Tiny. Uh, the art. Yeah, Tinyan. So that's why his name is Tiny Onion on his blog. 
Mm-hmm. There you mm-hmm. go. Tiny end. Mm-hmm. The art is by Martin Simmons. It's 36 pages for $3.99. Here's your solicit. Series premiere. Cole Turner has studied conspiracy theories all his life, but he isn't prepared for what happens when he discovers that all of them are true. From the JFK assassination to flat earth theory Whoa. and reptilian shapeshifters. <laughs> That's heavy, man. <laughs> I would freak out. <laughs> yeah. One organization has been covering them up for generations. What is the deep, dark secret behind the Department of Truth? This, this is the this is the first uh, image ongoing from James Tiny Onion uh, with art by breakout artist Martin Simmons, who drew Dying is Easy, which was that shitty Joe Hill stand-up comedian comic oh, from yeah. IDW. Yeah, it was not great. Uh, the art was good, though. The art was very good. The story was not great. Didn't, wasn't, who did um The Woods? Wasn't that? Tiny Onion? Uh, yeah, but that wasn't an image book. Oh, that was an image. You're right. That was uh, either Oni or Boom. I can't remember. Yeah. I think it was Boom. It was a That's right. Different publisher. Okay. My pick for next week is Shang-Chi. Number one from Marvel. It's written by Jean Luen Yang with art by Philip Tan and Dyke Ruan. It's 32 pages for $3.99. Here's your solicit. The Master Returns! An ancient evil. Secret society has stayed in hiding since the death of their leader. Zheng Zhu, who is by no means the super racist character that used to be his bad guy. <laughs> Fu Manchu. But now, his successor has been chosen to shift the balance of power in the world. Zheng Zhu's son, Zheng Chi! Witness the Marvel Universe's greatest fighter return to a world of death and destruction that he thought he left behind long ago. And discover the secrets to Zheng Chi's past that will change his world forever. Don't miss out on this epic tale of family betrayal, justice, as the incredible team of yada 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 all launch a new chapter in the life of Shang-Chi. I feel like COVID wasn't around. We'd be getting really close to a Shang-Chi movie, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been on the books for a while. Yeah. Um, I had somehow blocked out the fact that Gene Luen Yang was writing this. Yeah, man. That yeah. Gets me super excited. I, I love the character of Shang-Chi so much. And because it's like, just like Batman, he is a normal guy, but he has learned a level of Kung Fu that makes him superhuman. And I love that idea. Like in the Marvel universe, you can practice something and just get like so good at it that you can fight Captain America or maybe take down the Hulk, which we've seen Shang-Chi do before, which is awesome. Love this character. Love Marvel Kung Fu comics. Love Gene Luen Yang. Super excited for this. Should be good. The THN Trade of the Week goes to Gunning for Ramirez, Volume 1, Trade Paperback. It's from Image Comics, written and drawn by Nicholas Petromo. Yeah. It's a, that's a French-sounding name. Oh, yeah. It's a, 144 pages for 16 bucks. He sounds like a really good hockey goalie. Yeah, right. I yeah. bet he's missing some teeth. French-Canadian. Here is your solicit. What if the deadliest assassin in all of Mexico... A man with dozens of kills to his name was actually a vacuum repairman in Arizona. Perfect cover. Falcon City, Arizona. Jox Ramirez works at Robotop, the leading home appliance company in the Southwest United States. Jox is efficient, thorough, and discreet. That last one is easy. He's also mute. By the way, it's just Jacques. You don't say the S. Jox. Jock was. But everything changes when two members of one of Paso Del Rio's latest drug cartels 
pardon me, largest drug cartels, stumble upon Jacques and believe him to be the deadly hitman who betrayed them in the past, the ruthless Ramirez. Could it be that the cartel's legendary cleanup man is really a legendary vacuum cleaner expert? Now that they've found him, the men of the cartel will do everything they can to kill this traitor. This is a long solicit. Like, you got to save something for the book, guys. You know? I guess. Tease us. Well, this is the good news. This is the first in a planned trilogy, a tribute to the action thrillers of the 80s and 90s, a brutal narrative with never a dull moment. It's as much a descendant of Friedkin's To Live and Die in L.A. as it is Tarantino's Pulp Fiction or Rodriguez's Mexico trilogy. We're talking about... Uh, what is it? Desperado. Uh, what are the other ones? Once upon Robert a time Rodriguez. in Mexico. Yeah. Once upon a time in Mexico. Desperado. Yeah, yeah, Desperado yeah. two. Once upon a time in Mexico. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know the ones. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this just sounds like pulpy fun. Totally. Uh, and I've never heard of uh Nicholas Petromo before. Uh, but it looked pretty great. The preview art is really cool looking. Yeah. I think it's and gonna be so a lot of fun. I am looking forward to checking this out. Of course, we want to hear about your pagan solstice celebrations and who you're sleeping with. But we also want to know what you're reading next week. And don't forget to add these comics to your pull list so you can play along with us and do your local comic book store a favor, too. It's the right thing to do and the nerdy way to do it. I would really rather not know who you're sleeping with. I mean, Just like, FYI. you don't have to name them, but pictures are fine. You know, I mm, just... You know what? Uh, send them to him directly, okay? I don't need that stuff in my inbox. It's not a perverted thing. You don't have to make everything into a perverted thing, Joe. Jesus. It's a perver- it's a perverted <laughs> thing. It's definitely a perverted thing. We've been threatening to do it for a while now, but this book turned out to be longer than we thought. And also we had some other ideas, so sure. we put it off. But here we are finally ready to review an entire graphic novel for our take a look. It's in a book segment. And this time, we're tackling Tom Scioli's Jack Kirby, The Epic Life of the King of Comics. It's from 10 Speed Press. It's 208 pages. It was a hardcover for $28.99. Here is your solicit. The sweeping full-color comic book biography tells the complete life story of Jack Kirby, co-creator of some of the most enduring superheroes and villains of the 20th century for Marvel, DC, and more. Tom Scioli breathes visual life into Kirby's life story from his days growing up during the Great Depression to his time on the front lines of World War II and on to his world-changing collaborations at Marvel with Stan Lee. Just as every great superhero needs a villain to overcome, Kirby's story also includes his struggles to receive the recognition and compensation that he believed his work deserved. Readers can experience the life and times of a comics titan through the medium that made him famous. Tom Scioli is kind of a weirdo and he's best known for his work uh, with Joe Casey on titles like Godland and more recently his take on G.I. Joe versus Transformers, both of which are very, shall we say, eclectic in their presentation. Sure. It's obvious that Scioli is the kind of guy that comes from a school of Kirby and worships Jack Kirby's weird and wacky style. Do you think that Scioli was the right guy to tell the story of the King of Comics. You know what? I absolutely do because he writes and draws with a reverence, like you said, like a true reverence for the work of Jack Kirby. Uh, You know, he also, this, this comes kind of on the heels of his uh, fantastic four grand design, 
which I did not love. Yeah, it wasn't great. Be- because it just seemed like a bullet point list of things that happened in Fantastic Four. This was more of a narrative. It was told in Jack's own voice. Uh, you know, this was Jack Kirby's story from his own mouth. But it wasn't just uh, now, Jack's story. They also like, they would jump to his wife narrating. And then there was a right, couple other points. And then Stan Lee would narrate for a yeah, while. And then yeah. like Joe Simon would narrate for a little bit. And then, and the narrative boxes would change color. So you knew who was talking. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and you know, uh, they're very careful to point out at the beginning that this is a work of fiction. Yeah. Uh, and that it is a, it is a history in quotes pieced together through various accounts. Right. This is much more like what Box Brown does when he writes yeah. files. Like some that, of them like are the first-hand accounts. Some of them are second-hand accounts. Some of them are third-hand accounts, you know. So it's kind of an apocryphal history of Jack Kirby. Definitely. Uh, told from Kirby's perspective. And I think he freaking nailed it. Yeah, I, I have to say, like, I love Tom Scioli because of, the because of the weirdness because of what he does because of his strange art and nobody else is drawing like him and nobody else has his style so it makes sense that a guy like jack kirby who basically as we see in this book came up aping everyone else's style stealing this from there stealing this from there and showing like hey this is back in the day where everybody just stole everything that's what you did you looked at what was famous at the time whether it was popeye or you know, crazy cat and Ignatz or whatever. And you made your own sailor and your own funny animal comic. And that's how you got work. And in aping all those styles, Jack Kirby started to put together his own weird style and they hated it at first. They kind of hated it, you know? And when he was doing his thing at Marvel, it was very stripped down and Stanley loved it and wanted everybody to draw that same way. But then when he went to DC, he wanted to be Jack Kirby. He wanted his weird, bulky art, his strange ideas, his machines and stuff. And it was almost too much for them as well. It makes perfect sense why an artist whose style is as weird as Tom Scioli's would want to write this love letter to Jack Kirby. And I gotta say, when it opens with like the history when he's a kid in, you know, in Europe growing up in the shtetl, you know, learning as like a young Jewish kid, this didn't look like the Tom Scioli art that I recognize. It was cleaner. It was a lot more, not realistic, but historical looking and straightforward. And slowly as the story went on, Scioli showed us drawing, like showed us, pardon me, Kirby, drawing in other people's styles and showed us i can do that too i can also lift these styles and do these things like jack kirby was doing i think he identifies so much with kirby in the way that he created things and the way that he studied art and this was such just like an interesting look not just into Kirby's life and his history. Like I knew he went to war. I didn't know he like murdered people and like saw gore like this. And well, you know, I don't think they call it murder when you're a soldier. <laughs> it's still murder. And like how it affected him and how it affected his art. And like how, when he came home, he didn't want to do EC horror comics and crap like that. That was selling. He wanted to do superhero books. Cause he was like, I, I, I saw the real stuff and I want to stay out of that, you know? And there's so many perspectives, not just to, his life, but also to how comics were created at the time. And I loved 
how they kept like shouting out how it was Jack Kirby coming to work and there'd be five guys in the bullpen and be like, my buddy Joe Simon and I were working with these two new young kids, Mark Evanier and this other inker guy whose name I can't remember off the top of my head, but like, and just pointing out, here's what Marie Severin did and here's why she kicked ass and here's what, you know, Wally Wood did and here's why he kicked ass and how they all wanted to do their own thing, but they couldn't, they just couldn't. Because no, just, they were still doing their own thing. Wally Wood is a vastly different artist. I mean, they were, but at that time, they, they talk about how comics was still very boom or bust. And it was a thing where it's like, okay, now Westerns are the thing. Now Westerns aren't the thing. Now sci-fi is the thing. Now superheroes right, But are I bad, mean, that was, you know? the, that was the deal with the Marvel expansion and the, the birth of the Marvel Universe in the 60s. And, and it goes into detail in this book where it's like Stan wanted Jack to draw all the books. And Jack was like, I can't draw all the books. Yeah. I literally cannot draw all the books. Uh, I'll design this character. I'll draw the cover. You got to get somebody else to draw it. And that's why we get Wally Wood on, on Daredevil. Right. And it immediately changes style. Uh, and that's why, like, Don Heck drew Iron Man. You know, everyone's like, yeah, Jack Kirby created Iron Man. And it's true that he did, but he didn't draw the first appearance of Iron Man. Right. Um, like, her you know, and, and characters like, like guys like Herb Trimpey and stuff who were also drawing exactly like him and Barry Windsor Smith, who like came in and just like, they were all told Started draw off, like yeah. Kirby. Draw like Kirby. Yeah. And you know, it's, uh, there's uh, this vain, very famous story that they talk about in this book as well, is that when he went to DC and they're like, look, man, I don't want to step on anybody's toes on the main Superman books. Can't you just create a new book for me to draw? If you want right. me to draw Superman. And they're like, take over Jimmy Olsen. Nobody's working on it. Yeah. And so he made Jimmy Olsen the gateway to his fourth world books, but they had artists that worked for DC redraw the faces of yeah. Superman and Jimmy Olsen because they were desperate to keep them on brand. Right. And Kirby fucking hated them for it. Yeah. And it's so interesting to see like this guy that now we celebrate, but he fought all his life, all his life to get yeah, a yeah. small percentage of these characters and stuff. And like, and again, we don't know if this is hundred percent true. And Cioli says this is taken from conversations and things that he read, but like the fight with Joe Simon trying to get the rights for Captain America and Jack Kirby signs a piece of paper basically saying like, look, I'll just take the payout. So you guys are going to take care of Simon, right? No, Simon got totally screwed and they lied. Yeah, to him. right. Yeah, they lied. Yeah. And he didn't know. And they weren't friends because of it after that. And all this terrible shit that happened. It, like, not to mention the fact. I mean, it's a. Cioli goes a, out of his way to really reinforce the fact that Stan Lee was a real piece of crap back in the day. <laughs> yes, this this book is this book is very quick to point out uh that the majority of the things we love about the Marvel universe came from Jack Kirby and not Stan Lee. Oh yeah. Uh including uh, including, you know, like Kirby writing in his own dialogue in the in the borders of his of his work, you know, and then but then Stan would change it. Right. You know, it talks about it in the book. It's like, I had this whole story. I had this, like, I had this, like, very uh, theatrical, uh, metaphorical story for the Silver Surfer. And Stan just fucking gave him this classic sci-fi dumbass origin. Yeah. 
you and, know, which I thought was hilarious. Well, there was even like, uh, there was even that story that he wrote where it, it's like, an, in the end, it was something about, I think it had something to do with him who would later become, uh, Adam Warlock. Yeah, Adam Warlock. And in the end of yeah. the story, like the two creators like take off their hood and they reveal that it's Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. And Stan Lee was like, no, nah, we're not doing that. Even though it's his heart touching thing. And it was Jack Kirby trying to reach out and be like, look. Yeah, and it was like, this is it. This is my swan song. Yeah, we did this together and this is it. Uh-huh. This is the end of us. Yeah. And Stan Lee fucking changed it. Like, oh, that's awful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this, is, it, it, this is such a great, examination of a life uh, of a, of a man that had to wait until too late in life to get the respect he deserved. Absolutely. Um, like, you know, by the seventies, by the time the seventies rolled around and DC was launching the new gods, like that was built on the name of Jack Kirby. They put out, they put out huge ads in the books that, that said the King is coming. The yeah. King is coming. So like Jack Kirby was a celebrated name back then, but he had already been drawing comics for like 50 years. Oh, yeah. Or for, well, okay, not since the 20s, but like for a really long time. All these guys. I mean, they it just shows like the hustle that these guys had to deal with. Yeah. And, I, and I love the way that Tom Seeley drew everybody else kind of normal. But Jack, As an adult. But Jack Kirby's head was a little larger than everyone else. And his he eyes. He was like this chibi version. Yeah, his of eyes. Jack, like, were a little wider. And I think it's, he was just trying to show like this guy had so much creativity and just saw the world differently than everyone else that he, he made him this cartoony version whose head was just exploding with ideas almost. I mean, that's, that's an interesting way to think about it. I don't know if I, I don't know if I read it the same way, but oh, I loved it. Yeah. No, I like the, the idea that he was this kind of wide eyed, innocent. Yeah. Like just a sweet uh, you know, guy throughout that, the entire book. Like the guy was just like he never stopped loving comics. No, and he just even though you know he knew tell, at some points that comics weren't going to pay the bills, he just wanted to tell his sci-fi stories. That's all he yeah. wanted to do, you know. Uh, but yeah, like this this book, this was a phenomenal piece of work. Obviously, meticulously researched, and you know, like we've said multiple times, some of it might be bullshit, but right. it doesn't really matter. Um, well, you're he's telling a legend. He's telling a story of a legend. He's telling a legend. Exactly. He is retelling the story of a right. legend. And I think it's an absolute success. It's a huge buy it for me. Same here. Wonderful. I would be shocked if there isn't Eisner talk for this one this year. It really amazing. Seoli absolutely deserves all the awards that he does get showered on him for this. I hope this vaults him even higher in his career. Huge buy it for me. Excelsior! Oh. That is it for THN 591. Next week, we're back to new comic reviews, and we've got Ashley Robinson and Jason Inman in for our gotcha question segments where we're talking to them about their new project. It's going to be super fun. Until then, Joe Patrick. The cutest couple in comics. Give these nerds a new question of the week. Other than us, of course. I mean, we were. We got old. It's science. We're not as cute as we used to be, baby. Sorry. It's science. (laughs) It's science. Uh, This week's question was submitted by Frank Cirillo via the forums. This past week, I was talking to a friend about Superman, the animated series, and the subject of Mr. Mixius Pitalik came up. I said that the character design was great. So Frank's question is, what is a comic book to animation design that totally nailed it. What's your favorite and which one was just a failure? Cool. 
So we're talking about redesigns from comics to animation, and I have answers for both. All right. Yep. Sorry, I always get thrown off by that little break there. Cover to Cover is back every Saturday at 10.30 a.m. live on our Facebook page. And it is also the new home for our nerd news segment, and there has already been a bunch of nerd news this week. So call us at 402-819-4894 or shoot an MP3 of your answers to twoheadednerd at gmail.com and you could be internet famous. Please remember to keep it to two minutes or less and share the air, you big-ass nerds. That little break that messaged Joe Patrick up is the part where we remind you we are always looking for new question of the week suggestions. Well, I mean, I don't always feel the I don't always feel the need to mention it because sometimes we're we got a stockpile. Yeah, we may as well get more. Keep them coming. Shovel them on us, kids. Let's hear it. All right. If you're new to the show and you're pretty sure somebody else is writing all this content and we are taking full credit for it, you're absolutely right. But stick with us. You just haven't heard enough. The good news is you can hear the entire run on THN in our digital long box archive at TwoHeadedNerd.com. But hosting that many episodes, it ain't cheap. So we want to thank donors like Jeremy Jacquat. That just sounds like a fake name, but I love it. Jacques. <laughs> I love it. I picture him with that rapier. <laughs> Before we go, our weekly shout out goes to loyal listener John Tavertic, who finally had the guts to call in to cover to cover himself instead of hiding behind his six-year-old son. Where do you, Hugo? Kid for could making be five. your cowardly dad take the plunge. Could, could, the kid could be five. We don't remember. He could be seven. This is he not could a kid's show. I don't so know. It doesn't matter. And if your kid is listening, you're a bad parent. Until next time, true believer. He might be 17 for all I know. Remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer might just call Child Protection Services on you. This is the Two-Headed Nerd signing off. <laughs>